you, you can be seated. Chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 2, the Bible says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took at, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, while the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Then he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it? that you have come home so soon today. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. 
And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for mercy. We, we need your mercy. Because if we had your justice for our sin, we certainly would die in our sin and spend eternity in hell. We thank you that your son Jesus took what we were rightly due. And so, all of the hell that anyone would have ever known as a believer fell on Jesus. Help us always to thank you for your mercy. None of us are worthy of your mercy. If we were worthy, it wouldn't be mercy. And we do need your mercy, and perhaps we certainly understand that as your people. If someone is here that doesn't know Jesus, may they cry out to you and find mercy and hope that's only found in your son's life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. So bless us this morning that we would ultimately be people who love God, love neighbor, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 2 continues the narrative that Pastor Alex uh, preached on last week, which was chapter 1. And in chapter 2 here, we really have three shifts. Um, in verse 1 is obviously... Moses' birth, so from birth to 40, we really only have his life and birth that's recorded. In verse 11, the scene shifts right away to Moses' life when he's like 40 years old. He goes into the land of Midian, um, of course, as the scripture tells us, gets a wife, Zipporah. And really, that narrative takes us from age 40 to age 80. And then ultimately in verse 23, which verse 23 through verse 25 is a transition to the next narrative that Pastor Alex will get into next week in, in Exodus chapter 3. And we'll see in the following week in Exodus chapter 4. You go from age 80 to age 20. That's where Moses passes away, dies, not allowed to go into the promised land. So he has three basic shifts in his life. 0 to 40, 40 to 80, 80 to 120. And of course, 
part of the reason why Pastor Alex and I picked the book of Exodus to, to preach through, or at least the first 20 chapters, is that the Exodus story of the Old Testament is a shadow of the greater Exodus that is talked about in the New Testament. And no, none of us approach the Scripture unbiasedly. We all bring our own prejudices. We all bring um, however it is we've been taught the Word of God with our own thoughts. And you may have even friends that will randomly use the Bible and they'll just pick out verses and directly apply it to them. But I kind of want to spend a couple minutes uh, together to share with the church. I know this is things you would know because we, we share them in our Bible classes. You certainly hear it from the pulpit. But we, we want, as a people of God, to be trained in understanding truth. All of us wrestle with whatever text we're in to understand what God has said and why He has said it. And uh, there's some things, though, that we would want all of us to be mindful of, whether we're reading the Bible, whether we're studying the Bible, and certainly whether we're preaching or teaching it. And the, the Bible is telling a singular story. It's a singular story. It doesn't tell us all things about everything. It just gives us, as we're going to look at this morning, Moses' birth alone. And that singular story is the story um, of redemption. It's the story of how God redeems His people. And that story is told through the covenants. From the covenant of creation, uh, to the covenant of Noah, to the covenant of Abraham, to the covenant of Moses. We're in a transition here. This is why God's bringing us this story of Moses to the covenant of David and ultimately to the new covenant or the Christ covenant. Obviously, some of the covenants will have different terms because it's Jesus who is the ultimate picture and the fulfillment of all of the covenants. And we want to understand that as each of the story of the covenants unfold, God's people would have understanding of what was previous. And so, say when we dive into this text, the Jewish people, the nation Israel, was looking for the promised child, the Messiah, who would crush the serpent's head. They always had that in mind. And so, when you're looking at each of the covenants, they're really not replacement covenants, but rather God is showing us more of the story of redemption. More of the story of who the Messiah is and will be as each of our Jewish families looked for that promised one. Of course, as I just mentioned, Jesus is the fulfillment of those covenants. Jesus is the promised Messiah, and whether we're reading the Bible, whether we're studying the Bible, or preaching and teaching it, we want to train our eye to see Christ 
even from the Old Testament. And really, when you follow the biblical theology or the analogy of Scripture, Jesus does this with his disciples from Luke chapter 24 when he resurrects. And he meets with his disciples for 40 days and he teaches them. It is explicit to let us know that Jesus was teaching them from the Old Testament and he told them emphatically that the Old Testament was about him. And so as their eyes are being enlightened and illuminated by Christ himself and ultimately the Holy Spirit, when we're moving through the book of Acts, which is the church in the early New Testament period, all of the apostles would take the Old Testament and show who Jesus was. That Jesus truly is the shadow, the prefigure, the type of all things that were made of the Old Testament. Jesus is the point of redemption, just as we saw in our Bible class this morning. If you ask a question and you don't know the answer, and if you say the answer is Jesus, you're headed in the right direction. <laughs> you're going to a good spot. Now, one of the, the beautiful things about God toward His people is our God is so immense. He's so vast. He's hard. He's, he's hard for us to, to put into words, to try to grapple with and understand. And apart from God's Word, we wouldn't know. So we thank God for His inspired Word so that we can understand who God is and how He functions. Our God is also very intimate. I want you to look with me at verse um, 24. It says, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Our God is intimate with us. This vast creator God, the Lord Jesus, even in the design of every atom, is intimate with you and he's intimate with me. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. Now, God doesn't need remembering he doesn't forget things. That is used there for our sake. God will never forget His promise. And all of the covenant in a short phrase is a divine promise. God gives His divine promise through each of the covenants. I would recommend to you R.C. Sproul's book on God's promised redemption. It is a tremendous book. Um, we've utilized it in our Bible classes and it's from there he used that idea that really helped train my eye better to look at the covenants and to see that God is intimate towards us. He is giving his divine promise to his people. Even now for you and I, God hears us. He remembers us. He sees us and he knows us. Our God is intimate with us. 
Now, the first look that we're going to take as we continue this narrative found from chapter 1, we want to look at Moses' life as it transitions here. So go back with me to uh, chapter 2 and look at verse 1 or verse 2. The Bible says, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, you know the story, probably from your Sunday school classes and whatnot of Moses' birth. Here, in Exodus chapter 2, uh, the scripture lets us know that he, Moses, is a fine child. If you look at Acts chapter 7, verse 20, we're not going to turn there, but you can just note this, because Moses is spoken of in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen preaches. There in chapter 7, Moses' birth, he's, he's called, he's beautiful in God's sight. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith, he, the, the scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 that he was, the child was beautiful. So we know this. If God says something once, it's true. If God says something three times, he's really, really drawing our attention to it. Fine child, beautiful in God's sight. A child that was beautiful. So let's start with this. God doesn't hate ugly babies. Alright? Let's just get that out of the way. Many expositors, when they're looking at what this exactly means, ultimately come to that the meaning is unclear. Now I'm going to offer to you what I think it means. Um... I think once again, God is telling us the story of, the, of redemption of God's people through covenants. The fact that he mentions it three times um, lets us to know that his birth is unusual. God is about to do something different. God is adding to the narrative of the covenants. He's revealing to us more of the story of redemption. And we know that Moses in, in his life comes the giving of the law. I think John Calvin is helpful here. He wrote this, that there was some mark, as it were, of a future excellency imprinted on the child which gave promise of something extraordinary. And I just think for me, those phrases and what the people would have been trusting in, even Moses' parents who were looking forward to the child. In Hebrews chapter 11, when they hid the child, they were trusting in Yahweh. They were trusting uh, under God's providential care. And even the language that is used here by Moses that ends Exodus chapter 2 in a remembering of God's covenant he is training us. He is telling us he's about to give us more of the story. And we know this, that the Exodus is the great redemptive theme of the Old Testament, just as Jesus is the greater Exodus of the New Testament that, that of course, we're a part of. God's covenant marks 
Moses' life. And I think it's very important that we catch that. He's just not just saying, okay, here's his birth, and he just kind of moves on. And again, it doesn't tell us anything else about Moses' life. But Moses' birth to the story of redemption is significant. This is why God leaves this there for us. And so, when we even reading or studying the Old Testament, it's not need on our part to stray into you know, weird categories, but rather we want to train our eye to constantly be telling us that God is telling us a specific story. And that story is about His Son Jesus, the Messiah, and how God redeems His people. God is transitioning here in chapter 2, the redemptive theme of God's covenant promise made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham in his covenant, his people, the seed of Abraham, would go into bondage for 400 years. He reveals that to Abraham. And of course, we're at this time frame in Exodus uh, chapter, chapter 2. They have been in bondage. Last week, Pastor Alex, and again the call to worship read from Jude chapter 5, which the Bible explicitly tells us that it was Jesus that, w- that did save his people out of Egypt. Now, as the story of Moses' birth unfolds here in those 10 verses, the irony here that Pharaoh, who orders the killing of all Hebrew baby boys, his own daughter comes into play And she is the one that spares and Moses ultimately adopts Moses. It is this this Hebrew boy who will lead the Exodus. God in his providential care in Moses' life ordered the events. Even Moses' own parents could not have protected him. They, they, They prayed for, they left him in Yahweh's care. And they trusted in Yahweh. Now, the uniqueness of this basket cannot be overlooked on our part. Look at verse 3. It says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. What's so interesting, I found fascinating about this, is this word basket is the same word that's used of the ark in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. Teba, the Hebrew word, is only used two times in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is drawing attention to His birth, and just as God saved His people, Noah's family, in an ark, God protected and saved Moses. One expositor that I wrote or read the last couple of weeks even said it may have been identical in likeness, obviously a basket to an ark. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I think it's pretty significant to us that he's identifying Moses to Noah. Why? Because the progress of God's redemptive theme is being moved forward. And we're going to learn more of the story 
of the coming Messiah through the life of Moses, his birth and life, and how God will live with his, with his people. Here, the narrative transitions. As I mentioned earlier, it bumps ahead to when Moses basically was 40 years old. Moses flees. Moses flees because of obviously he took matters into his own hand. Moses in this middle section here in verses 11 through 22 obviously has a sense for justice because there's, there's three events that are described here that basically again would have made up his life from age 40 to 80. We get the story there found in verse 11 and 12. Look with me. One day when Moses had grown up. It just, you know, the scripture just catapults ahead. It's beckoning us to just follow along. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people. Notice this with me. He looked on their burdens. That is, Moses had begun to identify with God's people and in all likelihood, Moses' parents would have had him for four years. And in all the things that they inundated, man, is that not a call for us as parents? Pound your children with the truth. And it sticks with him. He doesn't understand everything about Yahweh, but he knows he belongs to Yahweh and his people. And now it's at this point, as he's raised in the palace of Egypt, being educated, as Acts chapter 7 says, and all of the, the wonderful splendor of a royal palace, yet he is now identifying with God's people. He looks around as he sees their burden. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses writes, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses had a sense of justice here. I think what's interesting about this is you look in Acts chapter 7, it says he defended him, and I think both things were true. I certainly think Moses sinned, but he was defending, and yet at the same time, vengeance is God's. It wasn't certainly necessary that he kill him. This is why I think the Bible tells us in Exodus that he did murder him, because he's looking to the right and to the left. He, he's, he's trying to see if he can get away with it. Yet, even here, you see, as he identified with God's people, that he has this sense of justice and God will enact justice on the nation of Egypt when the exodus takes place. It moves ahead in verse 13 through 15, the day later, verse 13, and he went and on the next day, behold, there are two Hebrews now that are struggling with one another. But look at this. And he said to the man that is in the wrong. Once again, Moses has this sense of justice as two Hebrews are grappling together. 
And he, he asks the question here in verse 13. Why do you strike your companion? The Hebrew answers him and says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, obviously, as the scripture tells us here, Moses becomes afraid and he takes off and he heads for, for Midian. Here once again, Hebrew to Hebrew, Moses has a sense for justice. And then ultimately in verse 16 through 20, once again it happens again. The priest of Midian uh, rule as it is. He has seven daughters there. They're getting pushed aside at the well. And Moses heroically comes to not only get them water, he, he, he draws the water for them. He sees that they, uh, injustice is going upon from the shepherds to the women. Now before, before we move forward, I just want to say a couple things to this. Here's one quick reminder that's, that's pretty easy for us to understand. We cannot do the will of God in the flesh. We cannot take things into our own hands. We must always strive to do what is right. Moses, again, had a proper motivation. Moses took vengeance. It is, it is God who has vengeance. And we should deal with our own vengeful hearts. Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, the Hebrew there says to, the, to Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Well, the answer to that is Yahweh will. And the new covenant is really becomes to the fulfillment of what was stated in the Mosaic covenant. God gives his law. Moses is the judge over God's people who will one day appoint 70 judges so that God's rule can rule over God's people. So here's what we have when we get to this. We have creation, we have Noah, we have Abraham, now we have Moses. Eventually we'll have David. And just as Pastor Alex read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 last week, all of these prefigure and bring shadows and types which point us to Jesus. And that all the promises of God, Paul tells the church at Corinth, find their yes in Him. So when we're reading and studying the Bible on our own, even our own, we want to train our eye to even go beyond just the historical, grammatical, and cultural interpretation of the time understanding the covenant that they were in, but to see that as a later fulfillment, that is, we want to comb the pages of Scripture and ask the, the Spirit's leading to help us find Jesus. To help us find Jesus. Well, again, the call to worship today was found in Hosea chapter 11. Pastor Alex even alluded to it in our confession and pardon, Hosea writes this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. 
Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We've looked at some things. We've looked at some transitions about Moses. Now let's look at some things that's found in our text about Jesus. And this one, you know, in preacher terms, is a, it's a softball. Softball is as you just tee it up and just knock it out of the park. You can't miss this. It's impossible to miss, miss this. Even though I would tell you to use your spiritual imagination to look at the types and shadows and prefigures of the Old Testament. Let the Spirit guide you as you see the various things where, where Christ is pre-shadowed. Here it's blanketedly stated in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. Where have you heard that similar circumstance? And he arose and took the child, verse 14, and his mother by night, and he departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. I called my son. Now, Hosea chapter 11 is a clear description of what took place. Israel was delivered from Egypt. You get to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, and here's what we learn. Jesus is the true and better Israel. He is the one, like Moses, has a unique birth, like Moses was born a Savior, like Moses was rescued from an evil ruler at birth. Jesus is the true and better Israel. I roll back to the text and I can't help but think of this. The word Teba and the idea of salvation in an ark. Jesus is the true and better ark. As Noah and Moses were saved in the ark, all those who are in Christ will be saved. In Christ is used, along with in Him, 180 times in the New Testament. 143 of those times is used by the Apostle Paul. Jesus is the true and final ark. Just as the Lord shut the door and sealed it, in Noah's ark, so you and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation cannot be lost. Jesus is the true and final, or the true and better, I should say, Moses. It is Jesus alone who leads the greater final exodus. Let's go back to chapter 2 of Exodus. I want to show you one last thing. Look at the language 
in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came to God. Here's the beauty of the promise of the gospel. We are enslaved in Egypt to our own sin. You're in bondage. You can't deliver yourself. But if you cry out to God, if you cry out and ask for His mercy, if you cry out and ask for His help, He will hear you. He will remember the promise of His gospel. He sees the circumstance of your life. God knows. Respond to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. Jesus is the true and greater exodus. I want to deal with one last thing before we go to the table. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Here's just a simple instruction for the church. I think at least in the course of my lifetime, in many places the churches that I have been a part of have struggled with the understanding of, of what God's providence was. What God's providence was. Well, to, to, to use the scripture to, to set us off into this and say some things, I want you to know that every single thing that's going on in your life is not happening by chance particularly for those of us that know Jesus. There is design and there is purpose. And no, it's not to win the Super Bowl. No, it's not to win or become and hit the lottery and become this multimillionaire. But that God is faithfully at work in your life, fulfilling and doing His saving purposes so that in your perseverance, no one who knows Jesus will die without faith. Think about Moses' life. Moses grew up in a palace. He lives on the backside of a desert. And then he wanders 40 years in the wilderness. Now, as one who will confess before you that desires my own Comfort. That doesn't sound appealing, does it? Doesn't. And yet, God's providential love and care was at work in all of Moses' life, just as he is your life. Failing to see God's providential care for us and neglecting the means of grace will cause us to stumble around rather than mature in the things of God. Where we have to wrestle with the circumstance of our own existence. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 8, you know this passage. And we know that for those who love God, 
Listen to this. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Of course, that's the eternal call of salvation. You and I now, as followers of Jesus, we love God. There is a certain specific purpose. But, but please understand this. That purpose is God's salvific purposes. And that God is faithful to you. He will bring your glorification to pass. And that everything that we experience in this life, some of it's like very difficult stuff. Yet God in His providence is always at work in all things. He's meaning even your own sin. Now that's not a free ticket to sin, but rather even when we sin as believers, as we all do, that God is working all things so that we would, as the confession says, detect quicker our sin, to respond to God faithfully quicker, and to believe that God's work is at work in our lives coming from His providence. Teaching us patience in adversity. Giving us thankfulness in prosperity. That God's loving care should provoke us to hold firm and to trust in Christ even when you're in a dark moment. Even when the difficulty surrounds you and you don't feel like you can breathe. Even in God's loving care for you as a child, He's provoking you to see your sin in His gentle hand because you belong to Him. That we would confess our sins, as Pastor Alex mentioned in a time confession. That we would keep short sin accounts. That we would grow in Christ. That we would not remain stunned in this beautiful life that God has given each of us. That we would trust in God's love and in the person of Jesus, knowing that there is nothing that will ever separate you from Christ's love. God is faithful. He's faithful to you. As you persevere through this life, in every difficult circumstance, whether good or bad, whatever it might be, God is at work in His providence for His people. He will deliver us to the age to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as, as we close, we thank You once again for this book. We thank You, God, that You have made it, us a part of the greater exodus that Jesus is leading. For someone, Lord, here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, might they see their lives in bondage to their own sin, enslaved. May they come to the end of themselves and cry out for mercy. Because if you are approached the way you design, you will in no wise cast away. 
Provoke hearts, Lord, that need you. Build and strengthen your people. Lord, help us to not walk through the life dismayed. No matter what the circumstances of life dictate, whether they are adverse or prosperous, may we always see you, Lord, in all things, knowing good and well there is nothing that will happen to us in this life that, God, that you are not faithful and that we can never be separated, no matter what it is, from Christ's love. Bless us now as we go to the table. We ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, you may rise and go receive the elements.